Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already Before we delve into this case, a friendly reminder that we're talking about some grim topics that involve the murder of a child. So listener discretion is advised. When you were a kid, did you love a good sleepover? Watching movies, staying up late, listening to music, eating junk food until you crashed, only settling in for bed at the request of the parents who were hosting? I loved going to sleepovers. My friend Tammy, she had the best ones because her house had a pool and a pinball machine and a Coleco gaming setup. It was the most fun place for 12-year-old me to be. Deanna Seifert also loved to spend time with friends, and when she met a new friend, Lindsay McCracken, she couldn't wait to have a sleepover with her. So come with me to a cloudy spring day in 1992, when 10-year-old Deanna disappeared from her friend's home in a case that would capture the attention of the Detroit area and end in tragedy. Deanna Seifert was the only daughter of parents Bob, a factory worker, and Betty, who worked at the local fast food place. Deanna had two brothers, Robert, who was older, and Brian, who was younger. In the spring of 1992, the family was struggling a bit as her father was laid off from his factory job. That didn't stop them from splurging and getting Deanna a phone for her bedroom to celebrate her 10th birthday on May 7th. The Seifert family lived on Essex Street in Warren. For those of you not familiar with the Detroit area, Warren is in Macomb County. The city borders Detroit along Eight Mile Road, and Warren is a mix of housing and industrial with the General Motors Technical Center and the Detroit Arsenal Army Base, which, in 1992, was still producing tanks and other hardware for the military. Warren is Detroit's largest suburb and the third largest city in the state of Michigan. Today's case takes place in the southeast corner of the city. If you remember the disappearance of Kimberly King from Episode 74, we're in the same neighborhood, just a few years later. Deanna was a student at the now-closed Elizabeth Little Elementary School on MacArthur, where she'd recently won an award in her science class. On Saturday, May 9th, Deanna was introduced to a girl on her street, nine-year-old Lindsay McCracken. Lindsay lived just eight houses away from Deanna, but also on Essex. The McCracken home, well, it was a little bit crowded. Lindsay lived with her mom, Denise McCracken, her father, Donald Cricken, as well as her siblings and a young woman named Lori Menzo. On the Saturday that Deanna planned to sleep over, Lori Menzo was away from the house for the night. I've read that Donald Cricken was also not home that night because he was in police custody over a parole violation, but I cannot confirm this. After checking in with her parents, Deanna was given permission to attend the sleepover hosted by her new friend, with the understanding that she'd be back to the family house by noon on Sunday. Sunday was Mother's Day, and Deanna had plans to craft some pipe cleaner flowers for her mother as a gift, but she would never get the chance. Also at Lindsay's house that night for the sleepover were sisters Susie and Sarah Steeple. The evening was your typical slumber party with yummy food, 
birthday cake for nine-year-old Lindsay, and plenty of running around. It was somewhere between 11 p.m. and midnight that Denise McCracken got the girls settled into bed. In Lori Menzo's room, the two blonde girls, Lindsay and Deanna, were snuggled into sleep, while in the living room, the Steeple sisters were sacked out on a mattress on the floor. Denise checked the locks on the front and back doors of the home before she went to bed about 1 a.m. Denise woke up at 9 a.m. and checks on the kids. That's when she notices that Deanna is gone, but Deanna's belongings are left behind. She doesn't think much of it, kids are forgetful, and Deanna lives just down the street. It's assumed the little girl woke up early and let herself out of the house, walking to the Seifert residence on her own. It's not until Elizabeth Seifert calls asking for Deanna at 2.30 that people begin to worry. Because Deanna isn't at home, and she's not at Lindsay's, and no one has seen her. A call is placed to Warren police, who immediately send a cruiser out to take the report. It's Sunday afternoon, and it's Mother's Day, but there is grave concern about a missing 10-year-old girl. Detectives descend on the scene and start interviewing neighbors on Essex. Lindsay's home is checked, and there is no sign of forced entry. If someone came to the house to take Deanna, they let themselves in. Police go door-to-door talking with neighbors to see if anyone saw the little blonde girl or if they noticed anything unusual overnight. As they're searching and questioning, the press learn about the missing child, a pretty, petite, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. Deanna makes the news, but her story won't be on the cover of the paper until Tuesday, May 12, 1992, when police announce an arrest in her case. Remember Lori Menzo, the young woman who lived at Lindsay's house? Less than eight hours after Deanna is reported missing, Menzo's former boyfriend is taken into custody. There is no sign of the missing child, but police think they have their man, and that man is 22-year-old Andrew James Trombley. Trombley was the son of Joyce Cricken, and Joyce is the sister of Lindsay's dad, Donald Cricken. Andrew and his older brothers were raised in East Detroit, and not in one of the nicer neighborhoods. Joyce's boys were troubled. According to a May 13, 1992 story in the Detroit Free Press, one of Andrew's brothers, David Trombley, he shot himself in the head while playing Russian roulette. David survived the shooting and ended up with a plate in his skull. Who does that? Who plays Russian roulette? Andrew's older half-brother, Michael Willis, he was also known to law enforcement. As a child, Andrew wasted no time getting into trouble, starting with a weapons charge as a young teen, moving up to car theft, and in May of 1992, 22-year-old Trombley is fresh off release from prison. He'd done a five-year term for car theft, but the case was a little more complex than simple theft. In this case, Andrew pulled the driver from a running car, beat him, and then stole the vehicle. Teenage Trombley could have served only 15 months for the crime, but during his incarceration, he was constantly in trouble. He racked up an impressive 54 misconduct citations for infractions ranging from assault to threatening behavior and creating a disturbance. At the time of Deanna's kidnapping, Trombley had been out of prison less than two months. Trombley's mother, Joyce, she worked and lived at the Hitching Post Bar, a watering hole on 8 Mile Road in Warren. And listeners, if you're curious, the bar and the apartments behind it are still there. 
Friends of Trombley said that at the time of the kidnapping, he was trying to get his life together. He was working construction and driving around in a distinctive 1974 Chevy van that was riddled with dents and trimmed with primer paint. As police talked to people who lived on Essex and also those who lived near the Hitching Post bar, the evidence against Trombley starts piling up. He does have a history of violent behavior, and when they take him into custody, they noticed blood on his shoes. But this, this is one area where investigators fall short. Instead of testing that blood immediately, they waited for some reason, and this allowed the blood sample to degrade. And I can't say how long this delay was, but by the time the blood gets tested, the sample was too degraded to test for DNA. However, the blood did test positive for A and B antigens and tested positive for the PGM enzyme. Deanna's blood type was AB, PGM positive. This blood type is rare and it's found in less than 2% of the population. While the blood is consistent with Deanna's, an exact match can't be made, but we have an 85 to 95% probability that the blood on his shoes belonged to Deanna Seifert. And listeners, remember, we're talking about testing and protocols that were used almost 30 years ago in this case. When police looked at Trombley's Chevy van, it was a work van. It had had two doors on the back and a sliding door on the side. On the rear of the van were two porthole-style windows, one on each side. Four of Deanna Seifert's fingerprints were found on or near the passenger side porthole. And we're going to come back to Deanna's fingerprints later, so make a note of this evidence. Also in his van, they found strands of blonde hair. But I haven't seen if those were scientifically matched to Deanna Seifert. On the other side of the evidence pile were several witnesses from the Hitching Post bar who said Andrew was at the bar, getting very drunk, until about 2 a.m. when he stumbled upstairs to his mom's apartment and fell asleep on her couch. Sleeping on her couch is where he was seen by both mom and her boyfriend after 2 a.m. And this is important because Andrew's distinctive van is supposedly seen on Essex as early as 1 a.m. and as late as 3.30 a.m. on the night of the kidnapping. Part of Trombley's potential alibi was provided by one of his friends, Ben Little. Little comes forward to say that Andrew used the van to help him move around 10 o'clock that Sunday morning. With Trombley in custody, police started knocking on doors near the Hitching Post bar. They're trying to see what people heard or saw the night of the kidnapping. One of the people they interviewed was a man named John Sliwa. He told them that around 2.30 or 3 in the morning, he heard the sound of breaking glass, which made him get up and go look out the window. When he did, he saw three men walking down the middle of the street in front of a Chevy van that was painted with gray primer. The van stopped in front of Sliwa's house, so he got a good look at them. While he was watching, a woman approached the passenger side of the van and said something to the person or persons inside the van. As she did this, one of the men walking in front of the van said, Are you coming to help us do this, bitch? If not, get your fucking ass back home. At this point, the woman walked off and the men continued walking in front of the van for another block or so. While Sliwa could not identify the driver, he did say the van appeared to be the same one he frequently saw parked at the Hitching Post bar. This means it was likely the van that belonged to Andrew Trombley. 
There were other sightings of the primer painted van that night, including seeing it on Essex Street where Deanna was staying with Lindsay. But we'll cover those when we get to the trial. Macomb County Prosecutor Carl Marlinga had been in office since 1985, so he wasn't green, nor did he have anything to prove in this case. He said that Trombley didn't act like he'd murdered anyone, and Marlinga and others thought Trombley could have been the middleman in this case, but not the actual kidnapper. With Trombley in custody, the search is on for Deanna Seifert. Not only did police and volunteers scour the area on foot, but other volunteers put up flyers all over town and stood at intersections showing Deanna's photo to drivers, hoping someone had the information that would lead Deanna back home. The restaurant that Betty Seifert worked at, they sent food to the house for the family and for searchers. This was an agonizing time for the Seifert family. On May 22, 1992, Trombley has a hearing, and the court asked him where Deanna was. When he didn't respond, the gallery hissed, booed, and called him names. During this hearing, Trombley's bond was increased from $1 million to $3 million, and that bond had to be cash. No 10% rule in this case. And while police liked Trombley for the crime, an alternate theory to the kidnapping came up. It seemed that Lindsay's dad, Donald Cricken, who was on parole, found himself on the losing end of a fight at the Frantoni Bar in nearby Roseville. He publicly stated his plan to sue the bar's owners, so Donald and Denise theorized that someone snuck into the house to take their daughter as a threat against them filing a lawsuit. But instead of taking Lindsay, they accidentally took Deanna. When approached by the press, the owner of the Frantoni Bar, Mickey Siriani, said, quote, There's no reason for retaliation whatsoever. It would never enter my mind. They're making it look like I did something wrong, and I didn't. You see, the bar didn't call the police after Donald was assaulted at the establishment because Donald had been trying to strike Denise. When he was run off by patrons, Donald returned with his pit bull and made threats against staff and patrons alike. When challenged, Donald backed down right away begging them not to call the police because he was on parole. And listeners, if this story sounds ridiculous, that might be because it's completely true. In fact, his partner, Denise, confirmed the entire story. The idea that the owners would retaliate was at best far-fetched, so the theory was dismissed. May ended and June started with no sign of Deanna Seifert. There was no relief for her family. If you'd like to see the missing persons flyers her family posted all over the area, I've shared them on Twitter and on Facebook. Tragically, the flyers and the ground searches are not going to bring her home. We have weeks to go before the small, badly decomposed remains of Deanna Seifert will be recovered. And listeners, we'll be right back. It was July 13, 1992, more than two months after she vanished, that the body of Deanna Seifert was found in a metal bin back behind a machine shop in Warren. The shop, Rotary and Engineering Corps, is one of many small machine and tool shops that dot this part of the city. Deanna's remains were discovered by the shop's owner who peered inside a metal bin at the back of his lot. When she was discovered, it looked like she'd been there for weeks. The autopsy was performed by Werner Spitz, who noted that her cause of death was a blow to the head, possibly from a blunt object or a fall. 
The body was dressed in the same blue-green nightgown featuring teddy bears and the slogan, Hug Me. Also on the body was a mood ring that Deanna was known to wear, as well as her underpants, which are on inside out. A forensic examination of her underpants revealed pubic hairs from three separate individuals, and none of those individuals were Andrew Trombley. While Spitz hinted at the possibility of rape, the status of the remains made it impossible to determine if Deanna was the victim of a sexual assault. During her autopsy, they also collected almost 40 pieces of fiber from her body and her nightgown. They were able to match some of these fibers to the lining of Andrew Trombley's jogging jacket. And I'm assuming a jogging jacket is what we would today call a hoodie. Listeners, evidence is piling up around Trombley, and we haven't gotten to all of the eyewitness accounts yet. At autopsy, the pathologist went on to say that Deanna likely died the night she was taken from Lindsay's home, and that she'd probably been inside of the bin the entire time she was missing. Now, there's a couple of notes here. One, Deanna had never been to see a dentist. This made identifying her body difficult. There was mention made of using DNA to identify her remains, but it appears that since the body was wearing a nightgown identical to the one owned by Deanna Seifert, and wearing a ring similar to the one owned by Deanna Seifert, and photos of Deanna showing her teeth were compared to the remains, they were able to conclude that the body belonged to the missing child. Two, we talked earlier about Deanna's fingerprints. Four of her fingerprints were found inside of Andrew Trombley's van. Well, they didn't have her fingerprints on file before she went missing, and her remains were not in any condition to obtain fingerprints. So what technicians did was they took pieces of Deanna's homework. I mean, dozens of pages of her homework. And they dusted them, and then they used these images to create a set of prints for Deanna. These are the prints they used to obtain her prints from the inside of Trombley's van, And I'm not sure how well this technique, creative as it was, would hold up in court today. So going back to the location where Deanna's remains were recovered, across the road from Rotary and Engineering Corps is a larger enterprise, American Chain and Conveyor Company. Now, American Chain and Conveyor has an evening security guard on premises. On the night of May 9th, around 2 a.m., he noticed a light-colored van circling the area of Blackstone Avenue. He noted the van in his log, and after he saw it park near Rotary and Engineering Corps, he exited the guard shack to make his rounds. When he returned to the shack after his rounds, the van was gone. And listeners, we could argue that at 2 a.m., Andrew Trombley is supposed to be at the Hitching Post bar, getting very drunk where people saw him. This makes it hard for him to be driving his van through Warren to dispose of the body of a child. When investigators talk to employees of the machine shop where Deanna's body was found, they want to know how the remains could have been there for two months without anyone noticing or without anyone opening the bin. The owner of the shop said he assumed the bin belonged to the shop who he shared a lot with. So it wasn't his bin, it was the other people's bin. Also, the bin was at the back of the lot, so it was not a convenient thing to check out. And finally, Deanna was tiny. She was a small girl. If her body were in the bin and covered with debris, you would not see her if you peeked in. One of the things that evidence technicians noticed about the scene about this bin where she was found 
was that the businesses on either side of this location produced a fair amount of metal shavings. If you looked around on the ground, you could see metal shavings. When they inspected the tires on Trombley's van, they discovered several similar shavings embedded in the tires of his vehicle. This is another piece of evidence, along with Deanna's fingerprints, which links his van to the crime. And keep in mind that this shop, whose shavings easily traveled onto nearby roads, was located just two miles from the Hitching Post Bar and one and a half miles from Essex Avenue, where Trombley recently resided with his uncle. Five days after her body was recovered, Deanna was laid to rest. Because we were in the days before the internet, they did an old-fashioned GoFundMe to pay for her funeral and burial. Money was collected by the Community Awareness Program Benefit Fund to cover costs. On July 17th, services are held at St. Basil's Church with burial at the Resurrection Cemetery in Clinton Township. Deanna Seifert's headstone reads, So small, so sweet, so soon. And listeners, it's going to take until November 9th, 1992 to charge Andrew Trombley with murder in the kidnapping and death of Deanna Seifert. Meanwhile, Trombley is held without bond. It'll take almost another year to bring him to trial. September 14, 1993, was an important day for the Trombley family. On this day, Andrew's older half-brother, Michael, was sentenced to life in prison for murdering a man during a robbery. Michael's defense is that, while he is a criminal, he is not a violent criminal. He claimed that police pinned this murder on him with the hopes that he would pressure Andrew into a confession, or that Michael would roll over on Andrew and admit what he knew about Andrew's involvement in Deanna's murder. And listeners, Michael Allen Willis is serving life without parole at the prison in Ionia. He is never going to be released. September 14, 1993 is also the day that the trial of Andrew Trombley in the kidnapping and murder of Deanna Seifert started in Macomb County. While Trombley's defense team asked for a change of venue, the request was denied. Because Deanna's parents would testify in the proceedings, they were not allowed to sit in court until after they'd taken the stand. Lindsay McCracken, the now 10-year-old who hosted the fateful slumber party, she took the stand and would testify for hours. One of the things she said was that she liked her Uncle Andrew. He used to babysit her sometimes, and he was always real nice. And honestly, there's a picture of her in the newspaper where she's on the stand, and it's just heartbreaking. Lindsay also told the court that she didn't hear anyone come into her room, nor did she see or hear Deanna leave the house on the night of the kidnapping. The defense said that Trombley had an alibi for the night of the murder, that he'd been at a party at the Hitching Post Bar where he drank excessively, stumbled up to his mom's apartment around 2 or 2.15 a.m., and then he passed out. His mother testified that she was arguing with her boyfriend that night, and was also in the living room near her son, so she was able to provide him with an alibi. The mother's boyfriend, Daryl DeRuin, he backed up her story and he said, yeah, he saw someone passed out on the sofa, but he didn't turn a light on, so he couldn't confirm that it was Andrew. And I find this a very interesting, nitpicky choice of words in this case for his testimony. Also providing an alibi for Trombley was Hitching Post patron Sandra Miller, she testified she walked out of the bar with Trombley at 2.15 a.m. She said she helped him walk to the stairs leading to his mom's apartment and that he was so drunk he could barely get up the stairs. 
And listeners, remember, it was roughly 2 a.m. when the security guard at American Chain and Conveyor Company noted a gray van in his work log in the small hours of May 10th. The defense also said that Deanna's fingerprints could have gotten into the van the day of the murder, that she was playing in the back of the van, and that's how the prints ended up there. However, Trombley wasn't at the Essex home the day of the disappearance, and Deanna didn't meet Lindsay until the day of the sleepover. So there really wasn't any way for her fingerprints to be in that van unless she was in the van when she was kidnapped. The defense deflected the fibers found on Deanna's body, saying that other people wore the jacket, and at one point, just a week or so before the kidnapping, Trombley lived in that house, so it's possible the fibers came from the bed, the sofa, or another innocuous source of transfer. The defense said the metal shavings and the tires, well, Trombley worked construction, and he could have picked it up on nearly any side street or parking lot in southeast Warren. Two experts took the stand about the metal shavings found in Trombley's tire. One, it was not large enough to be fully examined, but it appeared to be the same as what they found in the parking lot. This metal shaving, this little piece of metal, was so important that the prosecution brought in an FBI expert from D.C. to testify, in addition to an expert from the Michigan State Police Lab who testified about the metal shavings. On the prosecution side of the case was eyewitness testimony of Adeline Dietrich. Dietrich lived across the street from Lindsay McCracken's house. She said it was about 3 a.m. when she looked outside to see a van parked in front of the McCracken home. She said she saw a man carrying a girl through the yard and he was running like the girl was heavy. She thought the girl was Lindsay and assumed that Lindsay was ill and being taken to the hospital. She said that the man had his hand over the girl's mouth, that he carried her to the back of the van and either handed her off to someone or, quote, threw her in. The man then got in the rear of the van and pulled the door closed. A few seconds later, the van started and drove away. Dietrich told police she didn't see the man's face but thought it could be Trombley. Donna Sherman testified that it was between 3.30 and 4 a.m. when she saw an old van painted with gray primer come out of the Hitching Post parking lot. And this is where I should note that there are two ways to leave the Hitching Post. You can exit onto 8 Mile Road, or if you go to the back of the lot, which is where the apartments are, you can exit onto Rivard Avenue. Sherman said she was getting out of a cab in front of her parents' house on Rivard. She said the van was driving quickly and nearly sideswiped the taxi. She said she saw the driver and an occupant, both white males with long hair. Donna said she did not know Trombley, but later identified him as the driver of the van. She also recognized the van from the bar's parking lot. It had been parked there frequently over the past couple of weeks. Donna's sister, Tammy, who was leaning out the front door of the home as Donna arrived, corroborated her story of the speeding, light-colored van. The cab driver, Ray Zander, also corroborated Donna's story. One of the servers from the Hitching Post bar took the stand to say that while Andrew Trombley was drinking, he was not staggering or stumbling around the bar. She did not believe that he was as intoxicated as he claimed to be. We also have the testimony of John Sliwa, who lived on Rivard Avenue, who claimed to have seen the van with several men walking in front of it between 2.30 and 3 a.m. on the night of the kidnapping. Finally, David Leja testified that he saw Trombley's van parked outside of the McCracken residence at 12.45 a.m. on the night of the kidnapping. 
he recognized the van from when Trombley lived there. So I want to look at these times again, because we have a lot of eyewitness testimony here, people that said they saw Trombley's van or a van that looked like Trombley's van. We have the approximately 2 a.m. sighting of the van at the place where Deanna's remains are recovered in July. We have a 12.45 a.m. sighting of the van outside the McCracken house on Essex. We have a 3.30 or 4 a.m. sighting of a speeding van on Rivard Avenue near the Hitching Post. We have a 2 a.m. sighting of Andrew Trombley leaving the Hitching Post with another patron who provided this part of his alibi. And we have the 2.30 to 3 a.m. sighting of the van and a couple of guys walking in front of it along Rivard, just down the block from the Hitching Post. Listeners, the times don't add up, and that van really gets around a four-square-mile block of Southeast Warren. So, on November 3rd, a jury of four men and eight women found Trombley guilty of second-degree murder. And second-degree murder is notable because they didn't choose first-degree murder in this case, which means the jury felt Trombley was not involved in the kidnapping of Deanna Seifert. They think he was just involved in her murder. If he'd been involved in both aspects of the crime, then first degree was the appropriate charge. This second degree murder verdict surprised both the prosecution and the defense. It also meant that eventually Trombley would be eligible for parole and listeners, his first eligibility is in 2028, which is not that far away. After the jury gave their verdict, the prosecution and Warren police said they would not give up on the case that they would not quit until they found the owners of the three pubic hairs found on Deanna's underpants. Unfortunately, in the almost two decades since her kidnapping and murder, no other arrests or charges were ever laid in this case. On December 10, 1993, Andrew Trombley was sentenced to 40 to 60 years. The minimum sentence guideline range was 10 to 25 years, But the judge went above that because of six reasons. One, the heinous nature of the crime. Two, the viciousness and unprovoked nature of the kidnapping and murder. Three, Trombley's character. He had just gotten out of prison when this happened. He hadn't even been out for three months. Four, the large number of infractions that Trombley got while incarcerated. Five, Trombley's poor attitude while incarcerated. And six, the judge felt that Trombley had minimal potential for rehabilitation. On June 13, 1997, the Michigan Court of Appeals reaffirmed Trombley's sentence while acknowledging how circumstantial the evidence was in his case. After that, not much happened until 2015, when a Warren playground was opened in memory of and named for Deanna. The Deanna Seifert playground was purposefully built to be a safe place for children to play. It features rubber chips, 24-hour surveillance cameras, and it's located next to a fire station. Deanna's father, Bob, told Fox 2 Detroit that the playground is a fitting tribute to Deanna. He said he knows it would make Deanna happy that other children could play there. But Bob said he wants the playground to be a reminder that we need to keep kids safe. As of this writing, Andrew Trombley is serving his sentence at the Kinross Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. His earliest release date is July of 2028. So listeners, what do you think? Did Andrew Trombley leave the Hitching Post bar with some friends in the wee hours of Sunday morning and return to his uncle's home where he snuck inside using his key and snatched the wrong little girl? 
Who could his accomplices be? Who was the source of the pubic hairs found on Deanna's underpants? Whatever you think of Andrew Trombley, I feel like this case leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions. So please drop into the Michigan True Crime Discussion Group on Facebook and let us know your thoughts. This week's episode was researched by Haley Gray, audio editing provided by Bill Burt, production support by Olivia Holmesley. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. <laughs>